my father and my uncle built a hiding place in the monastery in case there is a control or anything happens where we have to disappear we'll be able to go there but much sooner than we thought there was at night some bombing of Russian bombers and in the morning German mar army marched into the monastery saying that the nuns were giving signs with light from the windows to the bombers and they told all the nuns to come out. You're listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. I'm Eleanor Risa. The nuns had been hiding Samuel Bach and his family for several months when the Germans took over the monastery. We left everything, and in a very big hurry, we ran to a room where there was a ladder standing on a very, very... Uh, high ceiling with beams and between two beams there was a certain passage part of the ceiling was open but it could have been lowered so that you would never tell there was a, a ladder standing there and we all walked up the ladder we disappeared under the roof the ladder was taken away and a few minutes later the Germans were already in that room we waited a day we waited another day. We were terribly hungry because we had nothing. We have not succeeded to prepare anything. Fortunately, um, my father succeeded to open a little hole in the roof and grab with his hand some of the snow that was on the roof. So at least we could drink the dirty snow which was on the roof. But um, after two days, he decided to try and see what is happening. So they, when it seemed to be very quiet in the evening there, he opened this trap in the ceiling and he lowered himself with a rope to the room. But when he uh, tried to open the door of the room, he realized that the corridor was full of German soldiers. So he came back immediately so there my father and my uncle started to work on a wall and actually we succeeded to go over into another building. My father, my mother, uh, my uncle, my aunt and myself. We succeeded to get to some place where there was a door leading to a staircase that was coming down into the street. And at a certain point, when we got down, the door to the street was locked. My father looked for uh, the garden of this, of this uh, building and he found a man. And uh, he paid the man and he opened the door and there we were, late in the evening, in uh, the street. After a day, we succeeded to get back into the ghetto. 
Chapter 5, Ghetto Life. In this episode, you'll hear the voices of Samuel Bach, Abram Zheleznikov, Nisan Reznik, and Henny Dermashkin Gurko, as well as diary entries by Hermann Crook. In the early months of 1942, thousands of imprisoned Jews in the Vilna ghetto were organizing around the arts, education, social services, and a newly forming resistance movement. By this time, many young people were left without families. They felt they had nothing left to lose. Because where there was a family, you had to, uh, you had the um, obligation to look after your family. You had, first of all, to look after your older mother, your brother, your sister, your children. So for these um, youth groups, where there was only single men or single women, it was easier to organize and to, to start thinking about resistance. We were very pessimistic. We thought there was no chance of staying alive. Nisan Resnik was one of the early activists in the underground and a member of the command. We had no weapons, we had no means. We stood mere hundreds against an enormous military apparatus with no help. And since we were going to die anyway, we decided to get weapons and prepare for self-defense. The leadership and makeup of the underground units was intentionally diverse. They called the group the United Partisan Organization. Over time, a broad range of groups joined, including communists, Bundists, revisionist Zionists, labor Zionists, and religious Zionists. They chose Itzik Wittenberg as a leader, not because he was a martial man, but because he was a little older than us. He was an honest and direct man, and he was a communist. We chose a communist because we believed the connection with the Soviets was important. We thought they were the only ones who could help us, so we chose Wittenberg as the head of the underground. Fighting organization, but in Yiddish was called Vereinigte Partisaner Organisation, United Partisan Organization, FPO, was divided in two battalions. And every battalion was divided in four groups, and every group was divided in four smaller groups for five people. The group of five was meeting every day. Nobody knew anybody else except his five members of the group and the leader of the group. We succeeded immediately in obtaining a radio. It was in the kitchen at Strashun too. We listened to all the communications from London and spread the news around, since it was illegal to have a radio in the ghetto. It was death to have a radio. We kept it in the kitchen at Strashun too. Every day we got information. We had a Weinstein radio, where we listened to Soviet and to English BBC radio, and we made bulletins, what's going on. 
It was a very powerful underground. And as a matter of fact, when my brother started conducting, uh, organizing the orchestra, they said, they, they uh, sent out flyers uh, saying that on a cemetery, there shouldn't be any concerts. Henny was a teenager and a talented singer from a musical family. In the early days of the ghetto, her father was killed in Ponar. Her older brother, Wolf, was a conductor and started the first orchestra in the ghetto. He had this feeling that in these terrible conditions, music, beginning of culture, will give the people a lift because you can always live with this pain and uh, a lot of people lost so many people in their families. So he started to organize a choir. He organized the Hebrew choir of 75 people and a symphony orchestra. I sang uh, with the orchestra. We were lucky that there was one old little theater there and it had a stage and this is where the whole thing started. January 17th. Today, I received a formal invitation. In the auditorium of the Rail Gymnasium at Rudnika 6, a dramatic and vocal musical program will be presented. I felt offended, personally offended, about this whole thing, let alone the festive evening. Hermann Crook had become the librarian of the Vilna Ghetto. Along with the underground, he objected to plans for the orchestra to perform and wrote about it in his diary. The organized Jewish labor movement has decided to respond to the invitation with a boycott. We are staying by the vent, and stay the heart so you have our clamp. Me tharob gelostehent, we buy a vein and the cover. Herman Crook and our group was very much against it. We even tried to sabotage the concert. We wanted to switch off the electric light. No, it didn't work out. Henny's brother persisted in spite of the controversy. He didn't feel like it's a cemetery. He wanted the people to have courage. January 19th. The concert we have already written about is over. In general, it was a success. Under ghetto conditions and with the ghetto possibilities, the concert is an achievement of the highest order. One and a half hours of elevation and forgetting is a great achievement. You see, that was the contradiction. By giving us a resemblance of a normal life, you play in the German, in the in the in the German sand. You give them time. From the other side, you you must let the people live, bring back their dignity. You couldn't keep them all the time. In the, in the feeling that there, 
There is nothing. You have to give him some hope. If you want to organize him, if you want to prepare a resistance, you have to bring them back to the human dignity and to human life. Because an animal, what is hiding, what is all the time under a, a pr oppression, is not able to resist. And I think that the, the cultural work in the ghetto, the work of the youth club, the work of the library, the work of the, uh, the concerts, of the auditoriums, the lectures, brought back to the people their dignity. In the end, it was great because the theater started, they started schools, they started a college, they started so many things that were important as far as culture goes. It was uh, very good for us. It gave us a lift. When Samuel Bach's family returned to the ghetto from their hiding place in the monastery, his mother brought him to one of the newly organized schools. I saw all the children sitting there, crowded in a small room, and they all had shaven hats because there was lots of lice. And they looked so miserable. And I looked at my mother and she looked at me and she said, you know, I'll find you a teacher. I don't think it's really necessary to sit here a whole day. And I never went to a school. What I did a lot was reading. In the ghetto, as a part of the ghetto, was the, a very big library, a very big Jewish library that existed there before and remained there. And I was uh, enjoying myself in making illustrations or drawings connected with what I was reading. My mother found for me a teacher. She was a very lovely person. And she encouraged me very much continuing to draw and to paint. And she has also shown my uh, drawings and paintings to some of her friends who were quite known uh, Yiddish poets in the uh, ghetto of Vilna, like uh, Shmerl Kaczerginski or Avram Sutzkevel. Now they have decided to make an exhibition of my work in the ghetto. Yesterday, at noon, in the lobby of the Ghetto Theater, the opening of the long-promised art exhibit took place. The drawings of the nine-year-old Samuel Bach attracted the most attention. The child is apparently an extraordinary talent in every respect. The exhibit is heartwarming. But when you leave it, you are once again cooled off. There is another exhibit in the courtyard of Rudniki 6. Lying here on their bundles are families with all their belongings, the newly arrived refugees from Ekaliskis. It was a very sad opening because the day before, some small towns around Vilna were liquidated and part of the people were brought to the uh, ghetto of Vilna. And the people that were brought to the ghetto were simply left in the streets, in the courtyards. And I remember we went to that exhibition of mine and um, people were sitting like this on the sidewalks, on the cobblestones of the, of the yard with, with their schmattes, with their suitcases, with their peklach. And um, 
They looked so forlorn, and there were children and so on. When this exhibition was over, I received from, I think from Kaczerginski, from the poet Kaczerginski, I received an old book that belonged to the community into which they used to inscribe all the marriages and uh, births and uh, important happenings of the, of the Jewish community. And this, was, this one was a book of the, I think, the last century. It had those important facts on one side. On the other side of this very precious paper, it was almost like parchment paper, it was blank. And they told me, go on drawing in this book. And then I went on drawing and watercoloring in this book, wherever there was a blank space between somebody marrying, somebody dying. I was making a drawing maybe of Tom Sawyer, <laughs> because I read Mark Twain, <laughs> or of, I don't know, Samson, between the pillars. The community ledger Samuel Bach was drawing in was just one fragment of the historical record of Jewish life that was on the verge of destruction, along with the Jewish civilization it chronicled. A group of people set out to save some of that record. At the forefront of the effort was Hermann Crook. Vilna was a city where there was a lot of Jewish printers, old Jewish books, new Jewish books, and there was a lot of libraries. From the beginning of the ghetto, Kruk was trying to collect and to save Jewish books, Judaica, Sefatoires, anything what was about Jewish life. He was very concerned about this. As a result of our efforts with the expeditions to Ghetto II, the objects and museum valuables were saved by us according to the attached lists. Inventory of Religious Objects and Museum Valuables, now at Strachan Street 6. 126 scrolls, 9 scrolls, 170 prophets and megillas, 26 shofars, 13 Hanukkah lamps and menorahs, 12... When I remember a meeting where Gens said to Crook, when the Germans have been killing the Jews, I was trying to save Jews. My hands are in Jewish blood because I couldn't save all Jews. Now I tried to save Jews. You tried in this time to save Jewish books. And that's true. Many of the books and documents Hermann Crook wanted to save were housed at YIVO, the Jewish Research Institute, which was on Vivolska Street, outside the ghetto. It is hard to convey my feelings on my first visit to YIVO. Yesterday I saw a picture that truly crushed me. The cellar is stuffed from top to bottom. I step on the excellent card catalog of the Bibliographical Center. The cards are lying on the floor in a heap half a meter high. Along with them, all mixed up, lies the card catalog of the YIVO Library. The books from the library shelves, which are in the same cellar, are strewn and confused, piled more than a meter high. Everything is broken, torn, soiled. Hermann Crook wasn't the only one who was interested in preserving Jewish books and objects. Paradoxically, the Nazis were too. The Germans had an institute 
for Juden forschung without Juden, for the study of Judaism without Jews. This was the so-called Rosenberg Stab. Frankfurt was his headquarters. Three Germans appeared at the gate of the ghetto and ordered to be taken to Strasuna 6. Accompanied by the Judenrat and a horde of police, the three Germans came to Strasuna 6. The director of the Rosenberg Task Force, refined and elegant, asked for me, questioned me about my work, and inquired about old books. And they made them at the responsibility to have a group of Jews to collect all the Judaica and to collect it in the Jewish Scientific Institute of Vivulska, it's a part of Vilna, and prepare the material to be sent to Frankfurt. I become a German boss. Today, I received a written appointment as supervisor of the work of ordering the Jewish books. The work has been done so far in the University Library building and in the ghetto. A warehouse of Jewish books is being set up in the ghetto. This is the fruit of my first labor. Unbeknownst to the Nazi officials who ran the Rosenberg task force, Crook was sorting books to send to Frankfurt and books to smuggle into the ghetto. I am the supplier of the ghetto. The guards at the gate are amazed. I bring desks, tables, benches, cabinets, card catalogs, sleeping boards, etc. into the ghetto. The Jews in the ghetto are amazed at how I obtained them, and only a few know that I've got a special permission in my pocket. But no one knows that under the furniture, I'm smuggling a mass of books for the ghetto schools into the ghetto. A sense of accomplishment that pleases me as much as climbing the high Carpathian mountains once did. Zelig Kalmanovich was a member of YIVO's pre-war staff. There was an argument between Kalmanovich and Crook about the best way to save books and other artifacts. Crook was thinking that we should save whatever we can and put it in hiding. And Kalmanovich said, no, we shouldn't save anything because everything that we will save will disappear. We have to pack them the best we can, let them take to Frankfurt. It will come the day when Germany will be defeated. Then this material will be saved. So Cook, Cook was a very good organizer. And he organized a group of Jewish intellectuals. I was also with, that, with them. And then I stopped work, working as an electrician in the ghetto and went to work in the evil. What we did is we went over all the places where there was Jewish book on Judaica. We brought them to the Evo, sorted them, made lists of them, put them in uh, packages, and then it was sent to, um, to Germany. Germans have now come to the YIVO building to carry out a final selection of the books they can use. To take them out. 70% of the books from the YIVO treasures, along with the books gathered up from the city, were rejected and thrown into the trash as scrap paper. The Jewish workers employed on the project are literally weeping. Your heart can break as you watch. The death throes of YIVO, the Jewish Scientific Institute, are not only long and slow, 
But like everything here, it dies in a mass grave, along with scores and scores of others. The library, the documents, the archives are all mixed up in one mess, and, following the Germans' order, is segregated as they want. And most important, most of it is thrown away as scrap. A small part remains where it is, waiting to be transported. The mass grave, the scrap paper, grows bigger every minute. Seeing that destruction, several staff members picked out a lot of literature and brought it to me. The risk to their life by taking away any piece of paper is awesome. Every scrap of paper endangers your head. Nevertheless, there are idealists who do it easily. Nineteen forty-two was a relatively quiet period in the Vilna ghetto. Still, the Nazis' rule was brutal. The chief of the civil administration of the city, Bits Commissar, the Bits Commissar for Vilna was Ingst. His Juden referent was Mura, and they try, tried to make a semblance of normal life in the ghetto. Normal life wasn't meaning that Jews haven't been killed. Now, instead of thousands, hundreds taken out, every day, there or there, five, ten Jews have been taken and killed. Now, that was normal. December 16th, 1942. Now, an illegal Lithuanian newspaper is lying in front of me. This issue states, among other things, that in the territory that is now Lithuania, 80% of the Jews were annihilated. December 18th. Only now has the world grasped that the Germans are murdering Jews by the hundreds of thousands. Only now. Today I learned from the radio the governments of London, the Soviet Union, and the United States issued a joint declaration today about the persecution of Jews in all countries occupied by the Germans. The declaration says, The attention of the Belgian, Czechoslovak, Greek, Yugoslav, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norwegian, Polish, Soviet, In view of the persecution of Jews taking place all through the German-occupied countries in a way unprecedented in history, aiming at the annihilation of the Jews in Europe. That the German authorities not content with denying to persons of Jewish race in all the territories over which their barbarous rule has been extended, the most elementary human rights, are now carrying into effect Hitler's oft-repeated intention to exterminate the Jewish people in Europe. From all the occupied countries, Jews are being transported in conditions of appalling horror and brutality to Eastern Europe. In Poland, which has been made the principal Nazi slaughterhouse, the ghettos established by the German invader are being systematically emptied of all Jews, except for a few highly skilled workers required for war industries. None of those taken away are ever heard of again. The able-bodied are slowly worked to death in labor camps. The infirm are left to die of exposure and starvation or are deliberately massacred in mass executions. The declaration was supposedly broadcast simultaneously on Moscow, London, and Washington radio. The number of victims of these bloody cruelties is reckoned in the many hundreds of thousands of entirely innocent men, women, and children. In all countries, 
Three minutes of silence were proclaimed yesterday. In this episode, you heard from Samuel Bach, Abram Zheleznikov, Henny dermashkin Gurko, and Nisan Resnik, whose Hebrew testimony was voiced by Claiborne Elder, as well as diary entries of Hermann Crook, read by John Cariani. The declaration was read by Arnie Burton. Next up, Chapter 6, The Underground. This special series about Jewish life in Vilna is written and produced by Nahani Rouse and Eric Marcus. Stephen Naren is the executive producer. Our composer is Liova Zerbin. Our theme music is an arrangement of Vilna Vilna, the 1935 song by A.L. Wolfson and Alexander Olshinetsky. The cellist is Clara Lee Rouse. Our audio mixer is Anne Pope. This podcast is a collaboration between the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University and YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. I'm Eleanor Risa. You've been listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. <laughs>